2018, we averaged a million pounds loss a year. So we are kind of burning through our surplus fast. So we had the luxury of a really big burning platform. That sounds weird, but the great thing when you get that close to being technically insolvent and we were 18 months away from it is you have to make decisions fast as a board. You have to allow the executive to carry them out and you have to just get on and do. So we did everything. We did membership, learning, the venue, we had to upgrade everything in about 18 months. And we're only now, three and a half years later, coming out the other end. And our challenge now is to not do what I mentioned earlier, which is do the, whew, that was really difficult and a bit painful and we didn't like it, so can we stop? Because when you ask the question up front, Tom, about whether membership bodies will survive or not, I think the ones that will survive are the ones that don't say, well, that was a three-year change programme, done. Advice to a membership body at the start of a change programme, I would say understand what you stand for and what your members want from you. So ask them, you know. Um, but equally understand your market. So to our point that we were talking about before with the kind of coalescence or the potential joining up of membership organisations, is somebody in your space offering what you offer? Um, and if so, should you join with them, partner with them, or, or should you differentiate? And as a marketer, I would always say, differentiate, what's your USP? Welcome to Content Talks brought to you by River Sounds, where we talk about how to get the best out of your content marketing investment. In this episode, we discuss restructuring growth for membership organizations, focusing on the challenges membership organizations face, and an action plan for future-proofing and change. To explore this concept, we spoke with Anne Godfrey, the Chief Executive of CIEH, and Nikki Murphy, Group CEO of The River Group. So Anne, starting with you, can you just tell us a little bit about your background? Um, have you always worked in the membership world? No, I fell into it by accident, as many of us do. <laughs> so my first also accidental career was in publishing. And then I fell into Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors as Managing Director of their publishing arm. And you do one of two things, working for a membership body for the first time. You fall in love and do it forever. And I'm now on my seventh. Or you run Screaming for the Hills, which I haven't done. So I'm still here. Good to hear. Um, so what was the appeal of membership bodies to you? Passion. Um, the people that you work with, whether it's your staff, your members, your volunteers, are passionate about what they do and they mm -hmm. do it for the love, not the money. The challenge then is harnessing that passion. Fantastic. That's a great reason to do anything. Um, and so, Nikki, can you tell us a little bit about your background, um, the River Group, and what your involvement with membership bodies is? Absolutely. So, the River Group is an agency based in Hyde Park in London, which focuses on building relationships between clients and their customers. We work uh, in the UK, uh, in Europe, and globally with uh, big membership organisations like the Cooperative, Weight Watchers, and so on. So, um, I guess my reason for being here today is to talk about uh, membership from the other side of the fence. Fantastic. So Anne, um, this is a slightly um, brutal way to start, but a number of membership organisations are failing. So is it fair to say um, that they've had their day? I think if you'd asked me that five years ago, I would have said that across the 2000 United Kingdom that many had. Weirdly, I think we're rediscovering our place and our, our purpose. Um, I still think some will go to the wall um, and some good ones will go to the wall. But 
overall, if you remain relevant, I think the sector has a future. Right. So there's a positive um, outlook for a lot of a lot of these companies. Okay. So Nikki, is that your view, or as an agency, um, is this your view as an agency head that consults with membership organisations? Um, I think you know there are there are over sixty seven million people in the UK, and it's estimated if you include retail card schemes that seventy five percent belong to a membership organisation or association. Ergo, no, they're not dead, and they haven't had their day. That said, um, if you look at professional trade associations and membership bodies, um, and there are about 8,500 in the UK, a number of them are in big decline. And it kind of depends what they stand for and who they are. So the biggest one uh, that is, uh, if you like, business to consumer is the National Trust, who hit a peak membership of 5 million in in 2017. So that's very healthy. But if you look at trade unions or political membership parties, um, then they have declined. I mean, politically, 13.2 million to 6.2 million over the last couple of years. So I guess it depends which way in you go. Is that something to do with the integrity of the membership organisations? Political questions. Never talk, to, <laughs> never talk about sex and politics. Quite possibly yes, Tom. <laughs> Let's steer a bit safer and look at um, uh, things like trade unions. So they've dropped from 13.5 to 6.2 million. I think it's, it's a matter of relevance and whether the organisation, whether it's a trade union or a membership body, is actually adding value to the membership and, and how vested they are in that and what they have to do, not just in terms of money, and, uh, but time to actually stay involved. So what value do membership organisations deliver to their members? I think it's about belonging. I don't know what Anne thinks. But for me, I think in this day of uh, being able to be connected with areas of interest 24-7 on your phone, it's about the things that particularly matter to you. So if you've just had a baby, it might be NCT. If you're starting a new job in professional services as a student, it might be the membership body for chartered accountants if you're training to be one. I think it's about what value the organisation can bring to you, either personally in your family life or professionally in your business life. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And would you agree? If I were to come at that from a, a professional membership point of view, which is really where I, I've sat for 20 years, I would say community and content. Um, and I think the reason that some membership organisations will continue to exist is that they've got that right. And the reason that some are going to the wall is they've got that wrong, because you could actually say that content is freely available on the Internet of Things. And you could say you could get community again in many different ways. But if you are looking for a professional community, validation, recognition, networking with your peers, best practice, you know, many of our bodies, including CIH, were created by people getting together to talk about how to keep the public safe. And that's as valid 143 years later as it was in the 1840s when they were out literally burning mattresses in central London to stop people catching typhoid. So I think as long as you can hold on to that sense of purpose and give something back either individually or collectively to your profession, then you will have a future. That's interesting too, isn't it? Because when you think about what I was saying about the National Trust and people's association with things that matter like health, as you've just been saying, you know, the National Trust is all about our heritage and beautiful buildings and indeed the growth of, of, of organisations um, that are looking at saving the world, most particularly in London recently, um, where everyone got threatened to get arrested today from Extinction Rebellion and the police were chucking them out of Trafalgar Square as I went past. Um, I think 
it is that sense of purpose and passion and making a difference. So perhaps it's worthwhile membership organisations that will survive. It's interesting. I, I do lots of events with members. You know, kind of go to them. So anything between twenty and hundred, and we have some very worthy campaigns. So the Clean Air Act and single-use plastic and waste. Um, and I got called by one of my members in Nottingham who said, "That's great. You've got some really nice campaigns on housing and clean air, but the single biggest challenge facing the world is the climate crisis. And what are you, my professional body, doing about climate change?" And he actually said, "And don't call it climate change. Call it climate crisis." And that, I think, again, is another strength of a professional body where your own members can push you mm -hmm. to have more of a purpose and to do more to actually help them fulfil their core purpose. You must have quite an emotive um, audience of members. Yeah, and it's, we were doing a really good um, job, as, as Nikki knows, of not existing. Um, and I've, <laughs> I've never quite understood how in the 21st century... I can't imagine you ever not existing, Anne. I know. <laughs> but how an organisation that's got environmental and health in it could be struggling as we were when everybody cares or should care about the environment. But it just shows you sometimes that purpose isn't enough, which brings in the other kind of P word. You, you have to have a purpose and fulfil it, but you also have to have profit to make sure you can do the free stuff. So that brings us on to, for both of you, um, what are the areas of revenue for membership organisations um, and have these changed and which are in growth and which are in decline? Again, there are, there are more ways to skin a cat than there are professional bodies, but we, we tend to split our revenues into two. There's the, the membership income around subscriptions and learning and education, and then there's what we used to call the commercial income, although those, that dichotomy is, is nowhere near as black and white as it ever was, actually. So that would be publishing and events and venues. You name it, we tend to do it to try and make money. I would say the single biggest decline, if you were a big publisher, would be in traditional publishing, um, and by that, I would mean for many membership bodies, we used to do 10 issues a year, 12 issues a year of hard copy magazine. For many of us, that has changed. Sponsorship, if you are still doing as well as you were 10 years ago in sponsorship, you're doing very, very well. But events are holding up. In some sectors, the job market is holding up. In others, it's dying. So again, it varies by professional body. And some membership bodies, single biggest income streams membership. And if you get that wrong, that will take you down. But again, some of us are actually seeing, am I allowed to do the political B word? Right, we've done the B word, we'll move swiftly on. But for the <laughs> two, two weeks to Brexit. <laughs> Don't. Um, the B word for the environmental health profession has created jobs because we protect the public, the profession protects the public. So our membership is going up and our membership income is going up, which is somehow counterintuitive. Wow, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, would, I, I don't disagree with Anne. I would say, you know, government funding, is an area that is is adversely affecting some membership organisations um, and user-led groups particularly around mental health for instance which is something we know lots about at River um, is is declining uh, as are charitable fees as, as people believe that charity begins at home and as Brexit the B word is affecting people people's personal income so, and therefore user fees are are often in decline. So of the eight and a half thousand smaller membership organisations in the UK, it is those ones uh, where the user group can't self-sustain that are struggling or closing. And I would say again, that those of us who are many things, we are a charity, a chartered body and also a limited company. We don't thankfully rely on fundraising, even though we're a charity. But I sit on the boards of some charities who are really struggling to actually legally with a new regulator fundraising the traditional manner and that's a huge threat where they've just relied on legacy income 
Um, and it's a whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of marketing, a whole new way of positioning themselves. And, and some don't quite get it. So is there more going on with this? Um, are there any other factors, perhaps cultural, um, that are affecting membership bodies' relevance? I'm never a great one for lazy marketing segmentation. Um, and by that, <laughs> I mean boomers versus millennials. Um, I consider myself to be a digital native, despite the fact I'm in my 50s. And I have some 23-year-olds who are members who cannot even use LinkedIn. So we actually do courses for some of my members to use LinkedIn. Oh, wow. However, people would say that for some membership organizations, they are struggling to bring in the 18 to 23-year-olds. But again, it depends on what you do. So if you have a strong learning offer, so if you have either 18-year-olds as apprentices or you have accredited degrees or you are a profession that you have to have a status to practice, then you're still engaging with that age group, that demographic. You do, with some of them, have to engage in different ways. But actually, people are people. And we used to say that with teleconferencing and podcasts and, and webinars, that you know, face-to-face meetings would go away. We still put on as many face-to-face member meetings from 18 to 85 as we ever did. Because ultimately, whatever age you are, you want to learn from your peers. Absolutely, yeah. Nikki, would you would you agree with that? I would agree with that. As, as a mum of, of a lot of teenagers, though, um, I've got six kids and, um, and, and five of them are between 19 and 22. Uh, I know, I moisturise. Um, <laughs> what, what I would say is that, you know, Gen Z, the millennials, the slightly older ones, I do think they have a different attitude to loyalty that is cultural. I can remember being kicked out because I'm also in my 50s as Anne is, you know, by my mum in the summer and told not to to come back until it's dark. Um, And you very much made your own fun and you socialised face to face to to Anne's point. There weren't ways to keep in touch that isolated in the way that there are now with the phone and social media. So I guess in, in answer to your question, I do think there is a gender divide irrespective of the fact that common interests if you like cycling you can be 12 or you can be 70 there are common interests vertical market interests if you like that hold people together but I think the way that people associate with each other because of technology has changed and I therefore think you know in organizational practice uh, River have recently started working with a business on the membership side that's chartered accountancy focused there are differences in younger chartered accountants than older chartered accountants and the way that they want to be communicated with in the workplace let alone outside of that so I think is it culture or is it age I don't necessarily think it's gender, but I do think there's a difference in in age. Uh, my kids would say they were less loyal than I. Yeah, you know, than no, I, I would quite, agree with that. Than I perhaps am. Do you think there's a sense of cynicism more so with with younger people? Ooh, what a horrible word, isn't it? Um, it really is. They're more transactional, I think. If you can give them something, snap moment in time that does something for them. I think it's that loyalty thing. I want you now. I want that thing. That's great. But why would I stay with you forever? Uh, but again, that's a sweeping generalisation, really, and it's difficult to, to do that without being lazy about it. What it's done for professional membership bodies is you can't just do what you always did, mm-hmm. which means it's added to our segmentation issues. It's added to the channels. You now have to do all the traditional channels. So you have to do face-to-face and hard copy and newsletters and events, but you now have to have Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, mm-hmm. Twitter. Yeah. Find, I mean, I worked for marketers, so we were on every channel known to man. 
And that spreads you very thin. And that's another reason the membership bodies are struggling, because you're adding to the skills that you as a membership body need to have and the channels you have to use, but you have the same or less money. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting just coming. I, I absolutely agree with that, with the membership organisations that we work with. But what we see particularly with the younger um, cohort within a membership vertical is that that these days they want to believe in their peers or influencers. So for them, following, oh, I don't know, one of the Kardashians, let's say, is uh, and being part of a tribe, if you will, within that is how is how they feel connected. And therefore, transactionally, just looking at, you know, the retail uh, organisations that River works for, it's the influencers that are, that are selling the lifestyle and therefore the product that that tribe buys into. So as Anne says, social media is really important, but in a slightly nuanced way than necessarily a a more more professional, I'm not saying uh, they're not professional, but a more professional body Mm. membership organisation would look at it. So do you think that... um that memberships are membership bodies are spreading themselves so thin is that the main reason um, why they've suffered more than consumer brands I think well we always go back to 2008 2009 so again in the space in which I am which is professional space if you had to join you have a license to practice then your members have to be members whether they like it or not and your issue then is managing that resentment because it can be resentment but when we had the crash the first thing that goes it's training yeah membership subs and travel So every single membership body that's discretionary, so you can choose to join and choose to pay, suffered in 2007, 2008, 2009. Same with charity membership. Charity, exactly the same. Some have never recovered from that, and some have had to find a different way of doing things. Um, And yes, their income streams went down substantially, and there are more things to spend on it. And that's why people like me ended up in professional bodies to bring the P word. Because when I started, I was told by an organisation that will remain nameless that what I did was dirty trade. And I was, that's because, <laughs> I'm just saying it as it was, and you would never get that. And that was because I had been a sales and marketing director, a commercial director, a membership director, and I believed in generating revenue and delivering profit, not surplus, and loss, not deficit. But it's self-sustaining, To do the free stuff, mm. exactly. And no, I wouldn't get that. You know, I would not get that approach in the membership body space in which I work, because people realise that you have to make in, to survive. But as a, as a chief exec in this space, that means you then have to manage very different cultures in one very small organisation. You have people who get up every day to do policy and campaigns, and you get people who go up to sell sponsorship and sell events. And they're very different people, and you have less money, and you have more activities. And it's I actually think it's... I mean, I find it incredibly rewarding, but that's the challenge that chief execs in this space mm. face is doing more with less. Okay. So, Anne, let's move on to the, the solution. Um, so, have you been employed each time to troubleshoot challenges um, within the organisation or have you joined and seen them for yourself? Um, how self-aware were they? The last three very self-aware um, because you don't employ somebody like me unless you want somebody like me. But the ones, <laughs> what do you like, Anne? Ooh, <laughs> I'm coming through and I'm coming at speed. Um, <laughs> I do transformational change. Yeah, dear listener, I've known <laughs> Anne for a number of years. <laughs> She's not lying. <laughs> um, the first four, I was still learning about membership bodies, so it was a surprise when I kind of worked out why we were so gloriously dysfunctional in just in different ways. The three as chief exec, I've been brought in to manage change. That doesn't mean that you're not surprised by when you turn over a few rocks and things crawl out. (laughs) Can I come back to a point um, that you made, Tom, that I don't agree with? So you said 
do you think membership bodies have suffered more than consumer brands? I think consumer brands, whether they're consumer brands that have membership membership bodies, you know, cards or whatever, mm-hmm. um, I don't think membership bodies have struggled more than um, consumer brands. I think con- consumer brands have struggled. I mean, if you look at the high street these days with, with those brands that used to exist and no longer exist, like HMV, for instance... You know, I think people are much less loyal to the point that we've always mm. been making to everything. I think Anne said That's that a, really a bit earlier, rather than just to membership. And, and I come back to what we see time and time again when we're doing consultancy and membership bodies. It's everybody says, "Oh, we need to transform because we need to be more digital." Actually, for me, it's about the purpose of the organisation mm-hmm. and the resonance that it has with the audience and the value that it gives. Back to my, if you've just had a baby, you might join the NCT. If you've just training to be a chartered accountant. Uh, you might you you have to to your point and join that that membership body to be accredited so it, it's what can it do for me as a as an, an individual and as a consumer not just for hearts and minds but also for for my family and for my job so it's that you know it's that that personal and professional value mm-hmm. And I suppose that and doesn't the articulation differ. of that from a content point of view. Mm. Absolutely. So that doesn't differ from a membership organisation to a, a consumer brand. That's, the struggle is the same, essentially. I think so. Because you've got that. Would you absolutely. agree, Yeah, yeah absolutely agree. Absolutely. So with so many stakeholders involved from volunteers to the board, um, it must be difficult to get the organisation on board. Um, how have you gone about it? Clarity. Um, <laughs> sometimes you have to get turkeys to vote for Christmas. Just saying. Um, and again, Nikki knows exactly what I'm talking about. I so do. the governance of membership bodies can be quite interesting. So the people that you're convincing are usually the people who are most in love with it because it's their body, but also who've been engaged with it for the longest time. So you have to get them to articulate something they've never articulated before quite a lot, which is where do you want to be? So ask some big questions. This is usually how I start. So where are you now and where do you want to be in terms of membership, content, community? And then come up with a strategy to teach you from X to Y and hopefully take as many people with you as possible. It's really interesting because actually, I mean, we have a, 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 member, a an agency, FISH, that focuses just on membership, but and River has big membership organisations, FISH, slightly smaller ones, but it's the same um, for, for in both of those organisations, little and big membership organisations, and also global brands, because what you're doing is talking to the chief exec, talking to the Anne, and saying, okay, how can a, a, a refined organisational strategy, ergo marketing strategy and content strategy, change what your audience currently thinks about you and what that makes them do and what you want them to think about you and what that and what you want them to do over what period of time yeah. and and effectively that's not a marketing question it's a commercial question absolutely so what are the hiccups along that journey i think when a user group comes together and mm. it exponentially grows going back to and revisiting always what the core value proposition for the members is their mm-hmm. reason the reason for the membership organization to be mm-hmm. and the reason for the members to therefore be part of it and you might join something at a particular professional or, or personal life stage that becomes no longer relevant or indeed uh, I was a, um, a trustee of a, a charity that became a, um, a subscription-based member organization in China where we set up the first foster program uh, because of the one child policy and the abandonment of primarily girls in um, rural China um, and over the, uh, the 
24 years that the charity was in existence, we paid people to effectively foster those orphans out of the orphanages into their own homes. But in October 2018, uh, China reversed the one-child policy. No need anymore for uh, the, the members uh, who were the parents, uh, pseudo parents of the of the kids, um, for for that to exist because um, the abandonment rate dropped by about 85, 90% almost overnight. So even though that's an extreme example, the, the point I'm trying to make is the same. The membership organisation has to maintain relevance, has to be doing something and be seen to be doing something. Otherwise, it it, it doesn't exist anymore. And it's interesting. It's it's stopping distractions. Membership bodies are actually really bad at saying no because they exist to support the profession. So actually, once you have that strategy and you've agreed that strategy, you need to not be distracted either by staff's pet projects, weirdly, or by volunteers' pet projects. And some of that is around digital because that word gets used way too freely, Um, whether it's channels or transformations. Some is around external relations and we want to be campaigning and policy. Some is that we want a content strategy. So you start with a strategy strategy. And I, I have some members who say, we want a commercial a strategy. strategy. <laughs> a strategy, strategy. It's like, we're not going to have any other kind of strategy until we're the strategy. And then we look at, and I, I plagiarise McKinsey like nobody's business. Do the strategy first, then have a structure for the organisation that actually works. Then look at the skills you have or might have to bring in. Then do the rest. And at the very end, it's systems. You know, and do all of that knowing you're very clear and not letting people run off to fulfil a pet project just because you know have generated enough profit that it's there for them to spend. I mean, I, I don't know if you found this, but certainly where you have um, membership organisations that have a big volunteer body as part of it, it can fall into the campaigners versus the hobbyists element of it and whether, therefore, the reason for being is so exponentially different mm-hmm. for the two that the, that the organisation is combative. Uh, and then when it has a group of trustees, often if it's charitable um, or indeed a, a, a board the kind of influx of NEDs at the top of that to try and restructure out of the personalisation of people kind of going, yeah, but when we set this up 50 years ago, this was the purpose. Yeah, but it's not the purpose mm. anymore is is also a really interesting dynamic. When I, well, when I talked about structure, I actually mean governance first and foremost. Yeah. You know, kind of one of the things that people say is what can go wrong when you're doing a change programme? And actually, oh, if you blimey. don't fix... What, what can go right? Oh, I don't know. We have moments. <laughs> if you don't fix the governance up front, it will come back and bite you hard because unless your board of trustees is fit for purpose, unless your council, you name it, it unless you've got the right people at the top, they tend, if they've been for a long time, to do the difficult stuff and then go, we've done that, let's stop, so don't yeah. push on. Or they just cannot stop representing either geographies or special interest groups or sectors. So the most successful change programmes I've done are where the first thing that happens is that the board agrees that it has to be modern, fit for purpose. And that, unfortunately, involves members saying it's not enough just to have members on the governance. We need to have, yes, elections and democracy is good. So I have half who are from the profession, but they're not there representing Wales. I don't know why I always use Wales, but we'll use Wales. <laughs> they're not there representing... <laughs> We're going to get everybody boycotting this podcast now because they're not Welsh. <laughs> Debo- I love my lovely devolved nations, but we have a one United Kingdom approach to membership. It's lovely. So you're there representing the whole profession as a member or a practitioner, not your particular geography. Mm. And then you bring in people from outside without any experience. So HR practitioners, lawyers, chartered engineers who want to do good mm. and who'll challenge you in a good way by saying, well, have you thought about X? And if you can move to a governance that 
keeps true to the heart of the purpose mm. and represents profession in a good way, but brings in external skills and challenge, then you've got some chance of succeeding. You're on the right track. It's interesting, though, and I'm going to go off script now, Tom, sorry. Do you but think? I, I, know, I know Anne's story in this particular organisation, and something that I've observed as a, as a charity trustee of a number of charities over the years is that quite often they'll get set up and then they'll grow like Topsy, much like membership organisations can do. And the people who were the original founders with the original passion and idea are less relevant to the, the new people coming in. And therefore you have a, 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 as I talked about previously, you have a, a tension at best and a, and a combative culture at worst. And therefore you occasionally have to chuck out trustees and directors who, who, are, who are being obstructive because they want to continue to do things the way they've always done. And if you do things the way you've always done them, then you keep getting what you've always got. And you have to change, whether it's digital transformation or whatever it is, you have to, mm. to proceed. So I know Anne's story, and I think the listeners would be really interested in hearing about your last three or four years in this organisation, because you have been pretty challenged and challenging, haven't you? Yes. Should we do the really short version? Because the <laughs> listeners really don't want the long version. We've got all day. We can edit it down <laughs> to uh, bite-sized um, chunks. So CIH managed to do both ends of the spectrum of dysfunctionality. So it was trying to be too charitable at one end, and it was trying to be too commercial at the other end. And we'd actually taken the silos that we all have between those people who are there to make money and those people who are there to do policy and campaigns, put them onto two different floors. So we actually did silos by geography with two different sets of name bands, two different boards, and the people who worked two for Two different sets of name bands. Yeah. So, so the basically who different for the training company. Oh, no, they thought they worked for a different company. Oh, gosh. The training company thought it was a separate company with its own board. And the charity thought it was a separate charity that just took the money that came from the training company and then spent it all on a little bit more. So we lost money 12 years in a row. 10 years, 2008, 2018, we averaged a million pounds loss a year. So we are kind of burning through our surplus fast. So we had the luxury of a really big burning platform. That sounds weird, but the great thing when you get that close to being technically insolvent and we were 18 months away from it is you have to make decisions fast as a board. You have to allow the executive to carry them out. And you have to just get on and do. Of course. And then, unfortunately, you have to stay Because your raft uh, it's is getting smaller. Really, really <laughs> small. And we're all wearing armbands and big rubber rings. Um, and that meant and there are that sharks there were circling. sharks circling going on, have that. So we did everything. We did membership, learning, the venue. We had to upgrade everything in about 18 months. And we're only now, three and a half years later, coming out the other end. And our challenge now is to not do what I mentioned earlier, which is do the... Whew, that was really difficult and a bit painful and we didn't like it. So can we stop? Because when you ask the question up front, Tom, about whether membership bodies will survive or not, I think the ones that will survive are the ones that don't say, well, that was a three-year change programme, done. Yeah, We're just going to go back to doing that for the next 10 years. You've got to just keep iterating and keep changing. And that means that people like me will be permanently employed. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> You're buying lunch then. <laughs> So it's good that you got to that state of, of panic to really sort of um, all hands on deck and that created a really fantastic change for the organisation. It did, but some people, unfortunately, it wasn't great because I had to lose 50% of my staff right. through yeah, no of fault course. of their own. And that's mm -hmm. stuff people get uncomfortable talking about, but I'm not, which is ultimately the staff pay the price if you get the strategy wrong. Mm. Not the members, although if their professional body goes to the wall, they would. But the single biggest cost membership bodies charities have mm. is the staff. But and equally, the members, sorry to interrupt you, the members would probably find something else to join or start something correct. else. 
Well, we have in our space five, six, seven overlapping membership bodies, so there'll always be a home for them, even if we weren't there. My staff, I had to let go reluctantly and hope they would find another job. It's, that's a really interesting one, actually, because something we're seeing as a, as a consultancy to membership organisations is the amalgamation, the reluctant amalgamation of um, organisations. Uh, uh, dear listener, Anne is slapping her head um, <laughs> uh, uh, together in order that, you know, two, two failing can become one successful. Are you seeing that, Anne, or have you been approached? We've been talking about it for 10 years and I have yet to see it, whether in my previous sector, which was marketing, uh, or in the current sector, you know, we we are having conversations. We will continue to have conversations with bodies in our space. The problem is you're going to have to ask a board of trustees who are of their profession to admit that their professional body is failing. Yes. And when you talk about M&A, one wants to be the M. <laughs> they don't want to be the A. And conversations, so we are in a conversation and the conversation will probably last for two or three years until you get somebody as a chair and it has to be almost an alignment of the stars. You have to have the executive in the right place, the organisation in the right place and more importantly the two chairs of each willing to put ego to one side yeah. and to admit that the two together will be stronger than the two apart. And then, of course, you're losing one chief executive, one marketing director, one Absolutely. of everything. So the Which is the same as business. Too. Exactly. Well, it's a business. I run a business. It just so happens to be a charity, a charter body and a limited company. It's still a business. I mean, that's, uh, I'm not patronising you, that is quite an insightful view because quite often in my experience, and we work for some amazing membership bodies who are very, very successful businesses. So I'm by no means, uh, dear river clients and fish clients, talking about you necessarily, but something that we saw when we, uh, when we produced our most recent white paper, Challenges for Membership Organisations, it, it became clear, uh, particularly in the um, online survey that we conducted, don't necessarily perceive themselves to be a business they believe themselves to be uh, a bit more worthy than that and uh, and profit being a bit of a bad word mm. and I think particularly the not-for-profit organizations that we have come into contact with some of them not all of them dear listener um, really do have the view that they don't have to always be that professional because there's plenty of money sloshing about yeah. and there's going to be a wake-up call at some point um, when there isn't and I always prefer the not just for profit so I would tend not to use not for profit it's not just for profit mm -hmm. so the profit you make is going to do something bigger you know, it's going to support a community or support a cause or deliver to the purpose so it's not just for profit because if you, you take that not for profit phrase too seriously then you die Slowly and painfully or really quickly, but you will die. So you're always reinvesting in bigger and more important yeah, things. Yeah, you make yeah. money to do good. Mm -hmm. So your organisation, before you came in, lost money for 12 years, you said. It had lost money for 10. We've lost money for another two. And we should, I'm touching a wood like substance, we should return to profit next year, but that'll be the first time Get in 13 years. Get your hand off Tom's head. <laughs> oh, harsh. <laughs> I'm only joking. So. <laughs> so you'll return to profit. We should next year. But again, only if we hold ourselves to the fire and make sure we don't take the eye off the ball. So you were talking about chief executives in potentially amalgamating organisations. So at that point, will you hang up your spurs and move on to a new organisation that needs changing? Because you'll have done your job right. Yeah. My, my board know that. I don't stay until forever. Membership recruitment people out there. Oh, Anne will be available <laughs> within the next 18 months. <laughs> Hopefully none of my members will be listening to this. <laughs> Well, let's turn um, to content now. So um, given the sheer volume of information available to consumers these days, how do you maintain a meaningful place in your members' lives? 
only provide what you can provide and nobody else can or curate what you can curate. To use a verb I used to hate but have kind of adopted because everybody else has. Um, it is, as I'm sitting next to people who do content, as you know, content is everywhere. So I think it's easier for a professional membership body because you can limit yourself, if you like, to the stuff that only you can do. So predominantly around education and learning and professional standards and competency frameworks. So content that you can build as a practitioner-based professional body and then bring in content from partners, agency, outside. Don't try unless you're huge, and I'm not. We only have 52 staff. I am not going to pretend to be a content agency, a publishing company. I'm going to find other people with those skills who can do that for me. Um, the bigger ones have the luxury of doing both or choosing, but we stick to content that only we can do where our badge, our brand, adds real value to the practitioner. But I, I mean, I actually think as a, as a content practitioner, that's absolutely best practice because content that only you can do, whether you're a membership organisation or a brand or professional body that sells accreditation like yourselves, whatever you can do is your USP mm-hmm. because no one else can do it. Exactly. And I think because of the 24-7 mentality these days where you can get content anywhere all the time, our... Um, our kind of ethos at River and Fish is very much it's not about more content it's about content that does more and that, that actually resonates with your audience and leads to an action whether that's more loyalty whether that's additional fees whether that's signing up for a training course whether that's joining the National Trust because you want to save our heritage whatever that is it has to say something to you but it has to be something that only that organisation can say and that's your connection or back to my point on Uh, Gen Z and millennials it has to connect you with a group of people that you either are very much like or aspire to be like um, and make those connections that you couldn't otherwise do were you not part of that Mm. closed community Mm. on on Facebook or Pinterest or Instagram absolutely don't spread yourself too thin with inauthentic content I suppose don't try and do everything yeah because you can't you can't Mm -hmm. So has the way that um, you communicate with your members, Anne, has that changed? This is an unusual profession in that it's not digital. So I probably wouldn't use them as a good example because I can't even get them onto Twitter. Um, so well, that's good because Twitter is the biggest complaining platform in the world. Yes, I know, yes. but quite, we're doing a major campaign, multi-channel campaign at the moment, and I'd quite like more environmental health practitioners to be digital but for most professional bodies we now have to do as I said earlier we have to use every platform so we are lucky we can still afford a 10 issues hard copy magazine and we can do electronic newsletters and we have a website with a a portal where there is more content and we do email and we do webinars you know and I now after today might even do a podcast we're having (laughs) so even with a non-digital profession we're having to deliver content in the ways all of our customers and we have customers as well as members our customers used to come and do what I call peanuts and peas so we made most of our money from health and safety training and food safety training so how not to kill people with allergens mm-hmm. um, increasingly I see what you did there I was thinking peanuts and peas we've gone peanuts and peas the book <laughs> it's a food podcast it. it's a food <laughs> podcast people increasingly want to have that delivered either on their phone or on their iPad so we've had to build an e-learning platform we have a virtual learning environment we have an LMS and that's an investment for us Mm -hmm. because our customers want to do their learning very vocational cook chicken separately and don't do this with allergens and don't cross contaminate so it's something you wouldn't think a membership body has to think about which Mm -hmm. is becoming an e-learning provider Mm -hmm. but we have to because our members and customers expect it So Nikki has this been a, a common theme amongst River's client base? In terms of different 
being where your customer is. Absolutely, and yeah, change mean, your approach. Yeah, I, I mean, I think those membership organisations that are that are, that are either continuing to be successful or are embracing change are thinking about their members first and foremost as human beings as opposed necessarily to we've got to flog these people something and and that changes not just the content that you produce but also where you disseminate it because it has to have value in order to get eyeballs or ears in in this um, circumstance and and you know we call it at, um, at river and fish bed bog and bath you know you've got to be with your content everywhere that your consumer is and a consumer is a member is a is a human being at the end of the day um and, and content's what connects them whether it's whether it's verbal or or you know through any other means absolutely um if there are any quick wins to be made with content marketing what would they be Oh, interesting one. I think quick wins in content marketing are recognising who your audience are and who your potential acquisition audience are and where you can find them. So it's understanding that person as a human being. What's their media day? Are they travelling to work on the train? Are they allowed to use the computer at lunchtime to go onto Facebook or social media? What, what magazines and newspapers, because people still do read those, dear listener, um, reading, and, and, and how can they connect with those people? Uh, and find the information that they want. Um, so quick wins in content marketing is know your audience. Absolutely. And would you agree with? Yeah, and if I pick it up on the, the digital side, so for me, less is more. Um, and another aspect of professional bodies, which I'm sure Nikki knows and, and would have found a one behind a head office, they tend to be quite wordy, which means if you look at our kind of digital estate, is what we would call it, I would call it 12 websites I had. 12. 12. 12 websites, 4,000 pages. That's I know. <laughs> of which only 200 pages were actually looked at. So when we started our digital transformation, which was the replacement of all three platforms, none of which talked to one another, all of which were unsupported and end of life, uh, we went down from 4,000 pages to 197 because the marketer chief executive did the information architecture and said no more. So for us, our content marketing began with... What, where are our customers and members actually going? What are they actually reading? Where, and they, I couldn't use UX. You know, I would have left my members behind. It's a case of which pages do you come from? And where do you go from there, dear trustees? Right, we'll rebuild those with slightly more modern, appropriate content. And we'll then have a, a, a monthly, literally, this is, I can't believe I'm doing this in the 21st century, but content marketing, monthly member email. We didn't do one. Barking. So my quick win was really easy. And then the second thing to do, and again, 21st century, dear listeners, we didn't segment our members by interest, period, because we didn't have a functioning CRM, period. So we put in a functioning CRM that says, are you interested in food safety, health and safety, environmental protection, climate change? One would hope so. Please take here. <laughs> Hello, which one? Oh, look, we will send you a segmented email that you can then follow through that will then point you to more interesting content and maybe some events and it sounds bog standard but the number of membership bodies who are still not doing the basics around mm. segmentation of content is astonishing taking it for granted but do you know what's really interesting about that is river works for lots of um global organizations that aren't membership or, uh, global organizations that aren't membership organizations uh, and and retail brands and it's exactly the same divide really? your stakeholder audiences into cohorts and email them with offers and information that is of interest to them and get them to sign up to it dear gdpr um <laughs> such that you have the permissions to do so and guess what they'll read something that interests them about products that they might want to buy and they will therefore click the button to buy it, it's not different really one thing i would say though that we probably haven't touched on 
on. And, and we are seeing those um, membership bodies that are um, kind of pushing beyond the boundaries, if you like, of current membership, good practice in mm. content marketing is user generated content. So coming back to those cohort groups for Gen Z and millennials that we're seeing with social platforms and influencers, I think that um, membership organisations could could really learn from how can we get our members together, not just at an event, but online in some kind of a black social user group that might be WhatsApp, you know, I'm not talking about anything dodgy here, um, such that they can share experiences mm. and talk to each other is a real, real way of showing value. That's great advice. And I think that um, users want to be more and more involved now in, in these kind of things and, and user-created content, I think, I think is, a, is a great way to go. Um, so Anne, Nikki, final question for you both. Um, if you could give one bit of advice to a membership body at the start of a change program, how can they future-proof their organisation? Hmm. What I would say at the start, so I'll answer that in two parts, is mean it when you say it or don't do it. Because any membership body that says it wants change but actually is saying it with its head and not its heart will fail mm -hmm. or will make some poor chief executive's life hell before it fails. So that'd be the first thing about the change programme. And I don't think there's any such thing as future proofing. Mm -hmm. There's now proofing and maybe next year proofing or the now three years. Now proofing, I like that. Well, you, you, I don't know how else to describe it. And I, I've I, written that down. There you <laughs> go. I referred to it earlier, which is if you say this is our three-year change programme and you get to the December 2022 and go, right, we've done that then. Let's just stop. That's not you future-proofing. That's you stopping. Mm -hmm. And if you don't continue to evolve, some poor soul is going to be brought back in in another three years to start yet another major change programme with actually annual iterations and learning from what's working and watching your competitors and avoiding the bad stuff. So I would say change is constant. It's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. Fantastic. The power of now. Now proofing, we've learned. Um, Nikki, what would your final uh, bit of advice I be? I would say that... Um, advice to a membership body at the start of a change program, I would say understand what you stand for and what your members want from you. So ask them, you know, um, but equally understand your market. So to our point that we were talking about before with the kind of coalescence or mm -hmm. the potential joining up of membership organisations, is somebody in your space offering what you offer? Um, and if so, should you join with them, partner with them, or, or should you differentiate? And as a marketer, I would always say, differentiate. What's your USP? So what do your audience want? Ask them. What are your competition doing? Do it better or do it differently? And and understand your stakeholders. Do you have, and this is a really tricky one for an agency or a consultancy, you know, you go in and you meet the chief exec and, and most often they're very visionary and then you look at the board of directors and sometimes you think, oh Christ, you haven't always got the right people to deliver just because somebody has the job title CFO, CMO, CIO, doesn't mean that they are necessarily um, the right person to enact change, uh, particularly, but not exclusively, if they've been in an organisation for a long time. So I would say, don't be frightened to change um, the stakeholders and equally don't be frightened to ask for help from an agency or a consultancy. But of course, I've got some self-interest there because we are one. Um, I think it's about understanding what other organisations are doing, who've done or are on the journey of doing what you as a membership organisation want to do and not being frightened to copy them uh, and, and, and understand what best practice is. Brilliant. Fantastic. Well, Anne, Nikki, you've both been fantastic. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, and I hope we, uh, we speak to you again, Anne, at some Thank point. Thank you very much. Hope so too. Brilliant. Thank you ever so much, guys. Thank you, Tom. Thank you.
not information overload, it's filter failure. I'm so sick of being told something changed right in front of their eyes. Enough is enough, like I'm not getting worse from this point. How are the guys at Barcelona training, how are the guys at Man United training, instead of just staying in the bubble? A growing number of big brands are communicating with their customers through podcasts, helping engage on a whole new level. Podcast listeners create strong trust with brands through podcasts. 76% of UK listeners have acted on a podcast ad. Listenership is growing across all age groups, notably in young adults aged 15 to 24, with around one in five now listening to podcasts every week. Growing statistics like this prove that podcasts are a medium not to be ignored. So, what's stopping you bringing your brands to the conversation? Yeah. River Sounds is a division of the River Group. We work with companies globally to create and distribute original podcasts to augment their branding and marketing efforts. We leverage existing content, such as blogs and social media, to design, plan, create, and distribute high-quality podcasts. We focus on creating podcasts that increase brand awareness, aid in customer education, and help support customer retention. It's time for your brand to make some noise. River Sounds, bring your brand to the conversation. Sure.